Does anyone want to give Darren a round of applause? Darren, you did a fantastic job. Thank you. Everyone who's sitting there going, good gracious, why did I have to listen to that? Um, I want to ask your mercy and see if I can show you why. Uh, Here at New Life, we say at the end of a reading, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And sometimes it's really easy to do that, isn't it? And sometimes you go, I guess. And I want to show you tonight, it's much better than I guess. It really is, and it's useful to have that genealogy right there in that particular part of the Bible. Can I remind you that we're going to have a question and answer time at the end of uh, my sermon? I love questions. Uh, They can be from any angle that you want to take, and uh, I'd I'd love to have them. On the way through, you might forget... Write them down on the back of your Care and Connect card, and that way when I say, are there any questions, you don't have to stare awkwardly at the ground. Uh, You can come up with your questions straight away. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us see the goodness of this part of his word. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this word that was recorded for us. Thank you that we could hear it read clearly. We pray now that it might live in our hearts because your Holy Spirit is here. And you are the author. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about identity. And I wanted to start in the most practical recent experience I had of identity, which was coming back from our compassion trip to the Philippines. Uh, Here's uh, Caro standing in the line going back into Sydney Airport. And um, I'm not sure, has anyone used the smart passports that we have now? A couple of you have. They're really helpful, right? So it's got your information on it, and as you connect it to the machine, it checks, checks you up and down and checks whether it matches with this wonderful new passport that you have. And if everything matches, guess what? You go through to the promised land. Isn't that good? Uh, you get to go through. And so it's interrogating you. It's checking your identity. And if there's a match, if you are who you say you are, good things are waiting for you on the other side of a little plastic barricade. Um, That is a wonderful thing, and it's testing identity. That's what we're going to see tonight happens for Jesus. We're going to see a continuation of the question, who is Jesus? Which is really one of Luke's themes I was talking about last week, Christology. Who is this Jesus Christ guy? Who is he? And we're going to find out by looking at this uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Luke's account of his life. Along the way, we're going to think about how to organize some very big bits in our universe. We're going to think about how does God and humanity, spirituality and creation, Satan and Jesus, how do they all kind of fit together? So we're going to be doing a little bit of work and we're going to start by thinking about Jesus. If we're thinking about Jesus, uh, we've got some options really. Uh, We've got God on this end of the continuum. And then we've got humanity on this end. And if we take a Jesus who is God only, just God, then we end up with a figure kind of like Thor. Okay? Is there any Marvel fans out there? Yes, I see those hands. Great work, back row. Okay, so the awesome thing about being Thor is you can be wrestling with some big fire-breathing thing, and when it kicks you through several walls, what you do is you get up and go pick up your hammer and go back at it, right? Because he's unbreakable, he's unbeatable, he's a god, right? That's that's what it means to be Thor. On the other hand, uh, I'm I'm not like that. 
And so there is another end here. If we took Jesus all the way to the other end, we'd see that he's a dispenser of wisdom, somebody who's a wise teacher, someone like Gandhi, perhaps. Okay, he, Now, Gandhi's dead. Did you know that? He's no longer with us, unlike Jesus. So the problem with being fully human is you're very breakable. You're very breakable. And so uh, Facebook reminded me uh, yesterday that it's four years since I broke my thumb falling off my bike. I'm eminently breakable. Thor is eminently unbreakable. What's Jesus? What's Jesus like? And so Jesus is neither end of the spectrum. In fact, he uniquely in all of creation is in the crossover point between divinity and humanity. No one else lives in this space. Jesus is, in fact, fully God and fully man. Uniquely, in all of history, he is the one who lives in this space. And so if we've found the God-man, God in a bod, the question that naturally comes up is, what will this fully God-man do? What will he do? And so that's what we're going to be looking at as we investigate these chapters. Just before we get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on a man called John the Baptist. Now, do you remember we met him last week? Where did we leave John the Baptist? Can anyone remember? In his mother's womb, jumping up and down, meeting Jesus. Do you remember that? No, but just smile at me and pretend you do. Is that all right? Oh, great. Good. Thanks, Trisha. That's fantastic. So here he is. He's all growing up now. And we see the two cousins meeting each other. Why is John out there? Well, John's out there because he's the Baptist. He's doing the Baptist things. And that includes baptism, which naturally enough, we we probably don't know. But if you're a Jew, then everyone else in the world is called a Gentile. If you're a Gentile and you wanted to become one of the Jews, you would undergo circumcision. But one of the other things you'd do is you'd be baptised. You'd be washed and immersed in water. So here's this incredible thing. John was baptizing. It was normally for Gentiles. His baptism was with repentance. Repentance is when we say, God, I've been going the wrong way. I'm going to turn around. I'm sorry I've been rebelling against you. I'm coming back to you. So John's baptism was with repentance. And confusingly, perhaps, John's baptism was for all. Soldiers were baptised, but so were Jews. Jews were being baptised, and the reason that's so amazing is it was preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus needed to talk to everyone, Jew and Gentile. Everyone needed to repent, and so John's baptism was preparing the way for Jesus. So something incredible happens. Have a look with me at verses 21 and following in chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Something quite extraordinary is happening in the waters of baptism in the Jordan. Something quite extraordinary. Jesus is doing something that everyone else was doing. So everyone else is coming. They were coming to repent of their sins. Now, if we know anything about Jesus, we know that he is fully God and fully man. Tick, we've got that. But we know that Jesus never, ever what? He never sinned. 
And so Jesus had no reason to be baptized, and yet it tells us he was. Why? Well, in Isaiah 53, 12, it says that Jesus will be numbered with the transgressors. What does that mean? What it basically means is Jesus said, I'm hanging out with you guys. I'm joining with you. I'm one of you. And so he hopped into the waters of baptism to say, I am with you, humanity. I'm showing my solidarity with you. And so Jesus, in his humanity, joins in the baptism. But then we see something extraordinary about his divinity. Now, have you heard that we believe in the Trinity? Yeah? God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who is three in one. And you go, where's that in the Bible? Who can show me the the word Trinity in the Bible? And the answer is, no one. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. So how do we get there? How do we do it? Well, if you have a look at this passage here, you're actually going to see the whole Trinity right here in this passage. Who's in the water being baptized? Jesus, good, you're paying attention, great. The Son of God is in the water. Who's descending in bodily form like a dove? The Holy Spirit. And then who can be speaking from heaven? God the Father. And so in this baptism, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together for the start of the ministry of Jesus. So if someone ever says to you, Trinity, where's that in the Bible? Take them right here and show them at the baptism we see all three persons of the Godhead working together. Beautiful. We also see that Jesus is the only one who is pleasing to God. Everyone else had to be baptized for their sins. But the declaration from heaven says, Jesus, who was apparently how old, guys? Look at verse 23. 30 years old, Jesus is the only person for whom God the Father could say, you are the son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, because he hadn't ever sinned. It's the declaration he has done everything right. This alone is the sinless son of God. Well, the next thing that happens uh, takes me to a holiday I had uh, just at the end of last year. My dad turned 70, which was quite a milestone, uh, and he said, family, we're going to go away on a holiday and I'm going to tell you our story as a family. And so what dad did was he got a whole bunch of pictures and he pulled out the family tree. And this is a picture, very bad one, I have to confess, of my dad in silhouette holding the magical wooden spoon to point to the different things on our family tree so that we might know who we are and where we came from. And that was really cool, and Dad shared our story. Have you guys done your family tree? Does anyone know their family tree? Good one. We, we find out in our family tree who we truly are. And so I found out that the furthest relatives we can trace back in Australia were married in Cobbity Church, five minutes that way, in 18-something. I'm a local, who knew? The joy of doing your family tree, right? And, uh, and so you find out who you really are. Now, in this part of the Bible here, wonderfully read for us by Darren, thank you, uh, we find out who Jesus really is by having a look at his family tree. Now, I, I, perhaps you don't know that there are actually two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible, one in Matthew's account of Jesus' life and one in Luke's, and they kind of go in opposite directions. Matthew starts with Abraham, and works to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and works backwards from him. I want you to see that for both of them, Abraham is important, but Matthew starts with Abraham. 
for Luke, he's just on the way. Both of them must point out King David because he's absolutely vital. And we know that Jesus descended from David because he was born in the city of Bethlehem, which is the city of Okay, good, good work. The city of David. It's the city of David. And so Jesus must be descended from David, which is why he's born in Bethlehem. But I want you to see, amazingly, Luke takes the genealogy back further than Abraham, which gave Darren more work to do. Uh, And so he takes it all the way back to Adam. Why does he do that? Well, Abraham is the head of the Jews. Adam is the head of all humanity. And Luke is concerned to show that all people are involved in the plan of God. And so for Matthew, Jesus is the ultimate king of Israel. Jesus is the ultimate king of Israel, the best Jew there could be. For Luke, Jesus is the new Adam, the one who is going to be the head of a brand new humanity. Have a look at verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam... The Son of God. Jesus is the new Adam. And that's really cool and exciting, and that's why the genealogy is in there, and I know you're very excited, but here's the interesting thing. How good was Adam in following Jesus? Adam failed. How good was Israel in following Jesus? Well, following God. They failed too. What will this new Adam, this new Israel do? How will he get on? Well, right now in the US at the moment, uh, there's some testing going on for these two things. Does anyone know what they are in the background there? Is anyone interested in, in, in manned space flight here? I see one hand. Graham, do you know what's going on here? Absolutely. So there's one from Boeing and one from SpaceX, and they're going to put men back into space in the, and women in, uh, in these wonderful spaceships. But you've got to test them before you pe- put people up there because we haven't done such a good job in recent uh, American history in putting people into space. So they're doing lots of testing. I want you to see here, Jesus has this incredible job to do, and he is under extraordinary testing straight away as soon as his baptism happens. Have a look with me in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was... He was hungry. Now some of you are hungry already, is that right? And you can't wait for supper. And uh, I, was, I was talking to some of the morning church people and I said, do any of you get hangry? Does anyone know what hangry is? I see it. Yeah, wow. I want to believe it. You guys do. Yeah. And so let's, let's get going. Okay. But here's the thing. Jesus was hungry and he was being tested. I want you to see he was being tested by the devil or Satan. And so Satan just turns up. Jesus has, has had 30 years of his life and the first time Luke mentions him is after his baptism. Bang, on the scene right now, Satan turns up. I don't know if he tested Jesus before, but he's under immediate threat right now. Secondly, we see that he's under real test. If Satan thought that uh, he was speaking to Thor, he wouldn't have bothered. So there's a real test going on. And because Jesus has not eaten for an extended period of time, Jesus is feeling weak. Must be. Because he's genuinely hungry. 
So Satan jumps in, and that raises a question for us, doesn't it? Who on earth is Satan? Am I right? Who's Satan? Who is he? And so you'll recall Satan turns up very early in the account of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told, now the serpent, we're not told anything else before this, by the way. Chapter 3, verse 1, ding, here he is. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden now we can talk a lot about that but what we see straight away is that the devil is a deceiver he's going to say to Adam and Eve I'm going to twist the word of God God doesn't love you he's holding out on you you can be God straight away the devil is a deceiver secondly we see in John chapter 8 Jesus is railing against the Pharisees and he says Just listen to Jesus' tone. You you need to know, right? This is just worth just saying on the side. You can have a really fluffy Jesus. Jesus is fierce. He is fierce. I want you to listen to the way he speaks to people he thinks are hypocrites. Have a listen. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Who is Satan? Satan is the quintessential liar. He trades in deceit. He will mislead you. He'll trick you. He's a deceiver and a liar. And then we see in John 10.10, a beautiful picture of Jesus sat right next to a fearsome picture of Satan. Have a listen to Jesus in John 10.10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that you might have life and have it to the full. Who is Satan? Satan is the destroyer. One has come to give you life and the other has come to steal and kill and destroy. You will see the fruit of Satan everywhere. And if you had to choose who would you have as the head of your household? The one who wants to give you life to the full or the one who is the destroyer, the deceiver and the liar? But the big question that follows then is, where does Satan fit? Where does he fit? We understand who Jesus is. And I want you to know where Satan fits into the world that God oversees. Firstly, Satan is real. He's not just an imagining. Imagine enemy. Satan is real and he lives in the spiritual realm that is around everything physical we can see. God, humanity, Jesus, Satan are all in this spiritual realm that exists. But here's the key you need to know. Satan is not the dark side of the force. Satan is not the dark side of the force. There isn't a yin and a yang in the universe. Okay? It's not like that. Why? Because Satan, unlike God, is a creature. He is created, not co-eternal with God. He is not God's bad side. He is not an evil God. He is, however, a real spiritual being. He's real and spiritual, but he is not divine. He is creaturely. Terrible English. What does that mean? He is limited. 
He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not able to be everywhere. He's not able to do that because he is not God. He's a creature. And so there isn't some heavenly arm wrestle going on between the good and the bad. They are not peers. God alone is eternal and uncreated. Satan is a real spiritual being and yet is a creature. But we see that the one who is the father of lies is opposed to the truth of God right from the start. The one who has come to murder and kill is opposed to the one who's come to bring life. This just makes sense. And so what will he do when they meet? Well, what he does is test Jesus. Have a look with me at these three temptations that are put before Jesus uh, in Luke 4, verses 3 and following. I want you to notice that the devil just, there's no, no surprise here, the devil talks to Jesus. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The devil talks to him and his first line of attack is identity. How did Jesus think he was the son of God? Well, there was all the stories that his mum told him about his birth. But in his baptism, just, just before, Jesus has been told from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And the first line of Satan is, if you are the son of God, tell this, bread, uh, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus It's a real temptation because Jesus is hungry, isn't he? He's really hungry. He's genuinely hungry. And so the the devil says, hey, bro, there's some stones. You can turn that into bread. Feed yourself. You have a real need. You have power to burn. Go for it. And the reason it's a temptation is because Jesus has not been eating because he's depending on his father for his daily bread. And here's Satan saying, just take care of it yourself. You got this, man. Do it. Do it now. Satiate your hunger now. And guys, this is how temptation works. Your hunger is more important than your holiness. Your appetite must be satiated. We must answer the call of our stomachs, our loins, our minds, our pockets. Do it. Do it now. And the response from Jesus is stunning. He says, quoting Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone. And so the amazing truth he reveals is life is not only possible with food, it's possible because the word of God enables it to happen. Jesus answers Satan's tempting with God's word. And Satan goes, well, that's a pretty good answer. I've got the next one for you all lined up. I'm sure he didn't say that, but it's what he does next. Verses 5 to 8, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Do you see this temptation? Here's Jesus, a lonely man in the wilderness, faced by Satan, And he's come with a job. His job is to win the world to himself. And so it's a real temptation. Jesus has been trusted to get all the authority and glory of the world and bring it to his heavenly father. The temptation is to take a shortcut. And Jesus' answer is, 
Worship the Lord your God. Again, quoting from Scripture. Worship the Lord your God only. And you guys see his response, and it's pretty impressive, but I want you to think again, why is it such a test? Why is it such a test? As if Jesus is going to bow down to Satan. Why is it such a test? Well, I want you to think about the way Jesus is going to gain all authority and honor and power. He's going to do it. We're going to get a little look at it by going to the end times. This is the other reading that was read for us. In Revelation chapter 5, we're given a little window into the end of time where everybody's worshipping Jesus. And here's why they're worshipping him. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and power and praise. Why do they praise God? Why does Jesus win all the world's authority and power and glory? Because, because he was slain. And so the path to get to winning all the world for Jesus goes straight through this thing here, the cross. And what's Satan offering him? The test is, hey Jesus, don't wait for all that terrible, brutal cross stuff to happen. Go straight to the glory. All you need to do is bow your knee down now and you've got this. Shortcut the cross. Shortcut the hardship. Go for the easy option. It'll work out much better. It's going to have the same outcome. It doesn't matter how you get there. Just bow your knee. Exactly like that, Claire. The temptation is victory without the cross. And Jesus says, no way. There's one more temptation that the devil has in store for him. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he's returned to this identity question. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What's the temptation? Here's Jesus in the devil, one oh, in the devil, in the desert, one on one with the devil. And the devil's saying, Hey mate, I can give you Jerusalem. You're gonna be the king of Jerusalem. You're the descendant of David. I've got this for you. What we're gonna do, look at this awesome view we've got. There are all the people milling about in the temple. Now all you'll need to do is throw yourself down. Because here's a bit of scripture. Isn't this amazing? The devil is using scripture to test Jesus. That's pretty amazing, right? And he says, it says here that you'll be caught and you'll be okay. So if you're really the son of God, let's take the acid test. Throw yourself down now and the angels will catch you. You'll land on the ground. All of Jerusalem will flock around and say, that's an outstanding miracle. We haven't seen too many people caught by angels in front of the temple before. And they'll make you their king and you'll be the head of Jerusalem. You'll be, you'll be the new King David. Go for it. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Dare to win. Chuck yourself down. Have the dare and it'll all pay off. The temptation is to seek fame in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no way. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Satan, who it says here, have a look at verse 13. When the devil had finished all this temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Satan's going to be back again. But here's what he wanted. He said to Jesus, I'm offering you fast food. I'm offering you a fast forward to the end. I'm offering you fast fame. Get famous quick in Jerusalem. And Jesus denied all of them. We see that Jesus is more faithful in Israel. 
When Israel was in the desert, they were hungry and they grumbled to God. When Israel were waiting for God, they bowed down and worshipped a golden calf. When Israel was told to wait for God's good timing on the edge of the promised land, they doubted and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until they all died. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus resisted Satan. He waited for God's timing and then these things happened. You ready? Jesus will feed 5,000 people in the wilderness. He'll turn five loaves and two fish into food enough for all the crowd. 5,000 people, not just one loaf of bread, in God's timing. In God's timing, it tells us that everybody will bow down and worship Jesus. In God's timing, it tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't cheat God's timing. In his timing, it will be glorious. So when tempted, we should remember what? What should we remember? We should remember Jesus' humanity. Jesus is the one who did better than Adam and better than Israel. But how? How did he do better? You see, if you're the son of God, you could say to Satan, and we see the demons do this next week, you'll, you'll watch. When Jesus meets demons, they're terrified of him. So Jesus, as the son of God, could have gone, Hey, Satan, I'm going to shortcut you. I'm going to put you in the abyss of fire and lock the gate right now. He could have resisted the devil that way. And he doesn't. He doesn't play the son of God card. In fact, what he does is something profoundly amazing. Jesus is tested like us. Jesus understands us and he responded for us. What do I mean? He didn't come back with the power of the son of God. He did something profoundly simple. He quoted scripture back to Satan, just like you and I can. The way the Son of God resisted the evil of the devil was with scripture, just like you and I can. And so the question then becomes, do you and I know scripture? Do you and I know scripture? Do we have that worked out? I love this tattoo I was saying to the guys this morning. Um, north isn't relative. Uh, like, yeah, right? On my arm, I've got north, right? I just think this is humanity in a tattoo. We're following our own arm wherever it leads us because we think that's the right way to go. That is not the way to go. The only way to know true north is through scripture. It's through scripture. That's the only way to stand firm. It's the only way. And so knowing God's word is the key to knowing God and resisting Satan. And what I'd say to you tonight boys at the back, ladies at the front, men and women in the middle, is how much scripture do you know? If I ask you right now what your favorite verse of scripture is, and your answer is gracious, John 3.16, that's okay, right? But when you're tempted, when the devil is saying your hunger needs to be satiated, and you go, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, it's not really particularly relevant, is it? So what if you know James 4, 7, which says, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Or Ephesians 6, where it tells us about the armor of God that enables us to stand firm. My question, brothers and sisters, is do you know the word of God? Because that's how the son of God resisted Satan. 
So if you don't know it at all, what have you got? What's your shot in the locker to fire back at Satan? We've got to know the word of God. Thirdly, I want to encourage you, take no shortcuts. The idea here is for Jesus, miss the hard stuff. It'll be easy. Just let it go. The truly God, the truly good will take God's time. There are some things in life you just have to wait for. Don't accept the lie from Satan to take a shortcut. Don't accept the lie of desirable destruction. It looks pretty. Feels good. It'll kill you. Really, don't listen to the liar. I just want to encourage you, we need to pray, don't we? There's this funny prayer. I don't know if you guys have heard it. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Have you ever heard this prayer before? It's in Luke chapter, uh, oh, go back. Uh, it's in Luke uh, chapter 11. It says this, Father, hallowed be your name. Put your hand up when you know this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Oh, I'm really good. That's great. Have a listen to what it says. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Whose kingdom do we need to, not my kingdom, Satan. Your kingdom, God. Not for my advantage, but for God's advantage. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day, look at this, our daily what? Our daily bread. How relevant is that? Give me today what I need so I don't have to take it the wrong way. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into... It's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? I've been starting to pray this more regularly recently. I'll tell you what, it sets your day up pretty well. Lord, I'm about your glory, your honour, your kingdom... Help me to put you first. Help me depend on you providing for me. Forgive me my sins and leave me not in temptation. You could do worse. Brothers and sisters, who are we? We're human beings. We live. Our true identity as human beings is in a created sphere. We're creatures. That's all we are. Wrapped up in the spiritual. And I want to encourage you to put this word into your locker. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. You and I need to know God's word that we might stand firm in the face of the devil's tent. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you that enables us to stand firm in the face of the devil. Father, right now, many of us will be tripped up in the midst of temptation and trial. I pray we might see the lie that what appears to be good is actually designed to kill us. I pray, Father, we would have a passion for you and your holiness, and I pray we might ask your protection in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Are there any questions? Thanks, Michelle. I've talked about Satan, temptation, Jesus. Yeah, go, Michelle. Okay. Okay. Why are the genealogies different? So, and in particular, why is David's son Nathan in one of them and Solomon in the other one? Nice. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things that we need to know. Uh, the genealogies are different because the authors have different intentions. So I, I really do think Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the ultimate Jew. So he's descended from Abraham. Incidentally, Matthew adds in a whole bunch of women who aren't included in Luke's account, which is fascinating. The second thing is, when I look at my family tree, I want no gaps. Sally's no more gaps, yeah? 
I want no gaps in my genealogy. I want to know exactly who the mother of and the father of, and I want no gaps. For Matthew in particular, he's, he's writing stylistically. So he goes 14, 14, 14. He uses numbers of groups of people to tell the Jesus story. Now we go, because we're very mechanical and we're very organized in the way that we want things to work. For him, there really are, they really are descendants, but they might not be the next of kin. Okay, they're in, the, they're, in the, they're in the genealogy, but they're not necessarily the next of kin. Okay, Now, that frustrates us immensely, and we start going, they're making it up. This isn't true. And, and I want to say, what they're doing is they're constructing for an outcome that makes perfect sense. It's a perfectly legitimate use of genealogy in their world, and it's perfectly offensive to our world. And so what I'm going to do is say, there is truth and order here, and it's different because the authors are intending different purposes. doesn't make it untrue. They're just putting different emphasis on the genealogies. Does that make sense? Great. It's an excellent question, and otherwise we go batty looking at it. Next question. Yep, over here. The Mitchies together have got a question. I not not um, coordinated. Um, I'm just wondering what the significance is of verse one in chapter four, um, where it says that Jesus led, was led into the wilderness for forty days. There's obviously a parallel there uh, with an earlier history. Why? Yep. Uh, so you notice I didn't preach on that, Annabelle. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I enjoy that you found that detail. Now, look, um, uh, it's clearly. The, 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 there's, there's 40 everywhere throughout the Old Testament. Um, 40 years in the desert, um, Moses is 40 and then 80 and then 120. And the Bible loves 40s, okay? It rains for 40 days and 40 nights, all that, all that sort of stuff. Um, why 40 days? Because it's, it's the number of completeness for the period that's being referred to, I think. Um, is it... Uh, yeah, and, and so uh, it is, we are supposed to have a little, little thing go off in our head to go, bing, isn't that like, and so you've done well. I think it's achieved its outcome, which is Jesus was tested fully in the desert, just like the people of God, but he was faithful. Is that okay? Thank you. Alec. Do you think it's significant that Jesus chooses to quote from Deuteronomy? Oh, that's a great question. You guys should run PTC or something like that uh, in our church. Yes, I think it is significant. Alec, why do you think it's significant? Because I suspect you've got a theory. Oh, I think it's significant because I think he's, um, he's relating everything he's going to do to the completion of Israel getting into the land. Yeah, so Deuteronomy is the book that's written on the entry into the promised land, and Jesus is saying... I'm going to get into the promised land by being the faithful Israel and he's quoting the book that was setting them up on the, on the way in. I, I think that's good. Are there more questions? We're all cool with Satan? No, I don't mean that the right way. Uh, have you understood some more things about Satan? It's very important we see the distinction. He's not a bad God. That's correct. Well done, Claire. You're spot on. If that's what you've got from tonight, you are on the money. So well done. It's good. I'm going to stop there. And uh, if you want to talk to me further at supper, I'm going to enjoy having those conversations. Thanks.